this bolt of lightning shot across the universe and inspired me with the idea that we have to do a podcast. And that's what I wanted to tell you. We should do a podcast. Okay, bye. Okay, welcome to Feature Creep, colon. Built-in microwave. Semicolon. Embedding failure. All right. Uh, so today we're looking at um, a small section out of a book called Programming and Programming, Thinking, and Learning uh, by Andy Hunt, who was one of the authors of the uh, book um, Pragmatic Programmer or Pro- Programming, I think. Um, anyway, they're, I think they were well known at one point in the programming industry. Sure. Um, not, not particularly germane to what we're going to talk about today we're just going to talk about more specifically this one section out of this book that we were um, interested in which I think so I think this topic um, basically we're going to talk about the importance of failure obviously we're talking about like learning from your mistakes but um, more than that I think and like as a as an actual process like an official or a, a structured process I should say yeah yeah yeah, I did. I agree. Um, I think it's. Uh, I think we could basically just start with talking about kind of the practice. Um, what what what's recommended in this book, um, or at least in this section, uh, the author uh, Andy Hunt. Um, he he starts this section off with a quote from James Joyce. Okay, a man's errors are his portals of discovery and um the i think most people can appreciate why that's so important right i mean learning from your mistakes but it's more than that whenever you're kind of going through a process of create creativity and and we're, we're really trying to kind of look at like anything you're designing or you're creating um you have to create an environment in which you can you can tolerate failure so that you can learn from them. Yes. You can't come into it expecting it to be done right the first time perfectly. Um, well, you can. Lots of people do. You can, but you'll be very upset. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Prepare for a lot of disappointment. Um, also, it leaves no room for refinement, right? And the, I, the, the process, I think, is to, um, or the idea of failure is to have that be part of the refining process of whatever it is you're working on, whether you're working on um, some kind of product or some kind of design for um, whether it's a graphic design or a product design or software design um, or any kind of process um, or just like lifelong learning and experience. Sure. Um, if you want to be a better human. Yeah, just be a better human. You, this yeah. is a big part of it. Um, at least it is for me. I find um, if I can get into a situation where I've left room for failure or created an environment where failure is safe, that's a big thing. Mm-hmm. Like the repercussions for failure are not um, dire. They should be something that's that failure is is part of it. I'm, I'm continually evolving the process that I'm going through. Right. You have to learn something when you fail and then reiterate and see what comes out the next time and do it again until what does the book say? Uh, there's a quote in this section of the book that. Um, basically says like it's fine if you fail you only have to get it right once which is the last time 
Right, right. Yeah, many failures, one time right, which is the last time. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't remember the exact quote, but that's the sentiment was that. Um, and that's, uh, so like in my own work, you know, I come from a software background, so I spent a lot of time um, developing software and that's, that's the whole, my whole development environment revolves around the failure. Sure. I have tools in place to, uh, the computer should be constantly reporting back to me what I got wrong, what's wrong, what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm also creating an environment where I'm free to explore that space. And so, um, when I write my code, I make sure that I have, um, good version control so that when I make changes, I can, comp- I can roll those changes back. The idea that I can return to a, a good known state. Right. So, uh, if anybody doesn't know what version control is, like, can you say more about that? Uh, sure. Yeah. I'm sure lots of people know what it is. Yeah. A lot of people do, but, um, at its heart, version control is the idea that you, um, let's look at like a word document. So if you're writing a word document or you're writing any kind of, um, even an email version control would basically, um, save the state of that email, um, in every state, starting from the blank page and then moving on from, you know, when you created, your your hello mr or mrs or ms so and so um comma and then start at the bulk of the email mm-hmm. it's going to save each state and so let's say you're kind of spending a couple of days like thinking about this email and you come back and you change some paragraphs you cut some things out and you put them back with the version control you would be able to look back at ma- some major revisions that you made and view those versions of the email in time and sort of like drafts. Yeah, exactly like drafts. It's that's exactly what it is is that every time you create a new draft, you store a copy of that and then you work from that draft and so every mm-hmm. time you're making additions, you have the ability to look back at some point and say, "Oh, I veered way off course in this email and what I started with as a, you know, a family-friendly Christmas letter has become a diatribe on politics and, you know, later hopefully you come to your senses and realize that this isn't the place to you know, alienate half my family by sending them some, you know, political diatribe as a Christmas letter. Uh, so, maybe, maybe they need to be. And maybe they do. And version <laughs> control can help you with that because you can look at it and you can see where your intentions were when you started and where you ended and give you an ability. Like for me, I use version control like this in all, in all aspects because looking at the big picture and like we've talked about before, getting some context mm-hmm. um, of what I'm trying to communicate is helpful. Um, um, so would you say that this kind of, uh, in this chapter of the book, um, they specifically refer to being, having the ability to backtrack to a stable state. And so if you decide when you're going through a process that you went astray somewhere, you would look back in your versions right? and you would look back at the last one that made sense before you went wrong and just go back and start working again from there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, I, I also think one of the takeaways of version control is that it gives you a safety net. Mm-hmm. And so it encourages you to make changes and push towards failure. Right. You might have something that's working, um, whether you have some piece of code that you've written that's working at some point, but it's not quite there. With version control, you should not be afraid to immediately start making major changes to the code, even though you know that the likely outcome is that it's going to break the functionality of the code. Right, because you can always go backwards in time to the last time it worked. Exactly, yeah. Um, I think that that uh, would fall under the category in this 
situation that, in, that we're reading about in this book um, in the freedom to experiment section. Yeah. Um, I like, uh, I think that freedom to experiment can also um, sort of overlap a lot with lateral thinking, mm -hmm. which is one of my favorite activities. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. And I, I do it for fun, but I also do it for problem solving and I do it unintentionally. Right. Like a lot of times I'm already several steps ahead when I'm lateral problem solving than the people who are working on it yeah. um, or other people that I'm working with on it because I've had so much practice doing lateral thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes I have to keep my mouth shut because I don't want to overwhelm people with a bunch of questions that they haven't arrived at naturally yet <laughs> right right what yeah. about this what about this have you thought about this <laughs> yeah yeah what size is the thing i, I do What's i also of? wanted to point out too um i do appreciate the the idea of uh thinking for fun oh yes right like, thinking you know fun. yeah well it, as you as you kind of put put it you do a lot of lateral thinking for fun and for problem solving right as in there's sometimes where you're just doing it for the entertainment value of it. Sure. Yes. Um, I mean, that describes a lot of our process for when we think about what we want to talk about on feature creep built in microwave. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's just like tentacles yeah. in all directions. Right. I mean, I think that's one of the greatest joys about this podcast is just, you know, the, the, the long list of uh, podcast titles. Yes. That sparks some imagination and, um, inspire us to yes. think about what we're actually going to talk about and work on. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, safety net. Um, it, yeah. So the idea of like, I like the safety net idea because even if you have a bunch of failures, you know that they're only incremental and it's not going to trash the entire project. Yes. Yeah. That's Which is where this, the security comes from or the safety, because you know that no matter how you fail at this point, it's not going to sink you. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That's exactly what you want to create in any, I, I think, in any of these endeavors. I mean, yeah. I think that's how we've tried to um, create our workflow process around creating these podcasts. For sure. We have a ton of, you know, unedited audio that's just sitting on a hard drive because we've spent a fair amount of time failing yeah um you know and, and and not to say that these are like the perfect podcast but they're working you know we're working towards that refinement and we're allowing ourselves you know yeah that that level of we're um, figuring out what that even looks like right i mean what does that look like i have no idea yeah i have no idea either <laughs> i yeah every time we kind of get in front of the mics i, I get excited and then i think about um I try not to think too hard about who might actually be interested in listening because at that point then i i feel like i get kind of I pigeonhole myself yes. into an idea of like what I, who I should be and what we should talk about and what it should sound like and why it would be interesting or not interesting. Yeah. Um, you're taking, you're shifting the focus away from generating the creative, um, you know, output. Yes. The, the things that we're creating. Right. There's all kinds of them. Right. It's not just the podcast. Yeah. Um, and so when you are distracted from the thing that you're working on, your focus is on something else, yep. which sounds really stupid and obvious now that I say it, but sure. like I've noticed this weirdly, I hope I haven't mentioned this on one of these podcasts already or I'm repeating myself, but I've noticed specifically, I really enjoy watching the show MasterChef. Um, and I, I like the junior version of it actually much better than the adults version. But uh -huh. something that I've noticed about the adults that I don't 
tend to see as much with the kids yeah. is that the adults will stop focusing on what they're doing mm-hmm. and focus on what each other is doing or focus on something that isn't the immediate task in front of them. And this happens very often when they're doing something that they feel like is a slam dunk. Like a person who is a baker and bakes a lot of cakes mm-hmm. is usually like the person going into the cake baking round of the show, the right, one who's right. overconfident and they try to do something that's going to impress the judges or they try to do something that they haven't done before to showcase their talents. Right. And then what they're focused on is impressing the judges or focused on showcasing their talents and they're not focused on making the fucking cake. Right, the thing that they're, they they're very good at. they always fall down flat on their faces because they, the whole thing that got them into MasterChef in the first place was being able to bake a cake. So right. bake the cake. Right. Don't focus on anything else. Sure. You already know you're good enough to be there with the cake thing. So just keep doing the cake thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but the kids don't seem to do that as much, probably because, I, I don't know, maybe they feel like the stakes are not as high I mean, or I something. To, they yeah. don't have a frame of reference for what a really steep competition feels like. Right, um, right. And I don't know. I have no idea. I can't psychoanalyze strangers, children, sure. or otherwise. But yeah, it just yeah. seems like there's an inability to concentrate on the task at hand with the adults because they're too competitive. Mm-hmm. Right. They're more focused on beating somebody than they are on making a cake. Right, than just making a cake for the sake of the cake. Yeah. Letting it stand on its own. Um, well, and so that kind of, um, you know, that's to kind of shift uh, or to kind of look at that environment, like a competitive environment like that, that doesn't always, um, there's good, so a competitive environment like mm-hmm. that creates like a certain amount of stress, right? Which can be a yes. big motivator for people. It also, and not so much the stress, but the consequences can sometimes be, at least in that environment, not conducive to what we're talking about right now, sure. which is there's not a lot of room for uh, mistakes. Right, because or, you're this when you're in a competition like that, mm. this should be the last time that you're iterating and that you shouldn't have to learn anything anymore. You should just be able to reproduce the perfect end right. product or whatever perfect means, however close to perfect you have to get. Most of the time you don't have to be perfect in, right. in a lot of things. But yeah. Um, yeah, in that case, like uh, the book actually mentions something about um, time compression mm-hmm. being a creativity killer. Right. Um, and a lot of people feel like they might, might excuse me, get sharper under pressure or something, mm-hmm. but it, um, it forces you to be in an analytical mode rather than a creative mode. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're, it ultimately, you may not produce as good a product. Right. Not product for profit necessarily, but as good an end result as if you had less time compression or less stress involved with the process yeah that's actually interesting that's something that i struggle with um myself as far as um my own work processes or my my own kind of working environments where time constraints or time compression can oftentimes be a huge motivator or basically as those i'm sure many people who are very familiar with procrastination understand the concept of like waiting to the last minute to do something. Yes. And so um, I often find I'm most productive at the last minute. That's Mm -hmm. when it's like, well, that's when the things get done. Um, But that's also that kind of logic is also like, why are my car keys always in the last place I look? Right. It's like, well, it's always, it's always done at the last minute in the sense that, you know, it's when it's done, it's, it's done. But um, I I think what I was getting at is that, uh, if I can get myself to start mm-hmm. 
in with so if there's like a calendar deadline for a project and I can get myself to start well before there's um before the deadline mm-hmm. and I have plenty of time I I oftentimes can really utilize that uncompressed time for creativity mm-hmm. and that shows in the project but on the other hand that's not very efficient for um, my own personal use of time if it's just about making money because or the client's time because I can also find that if I'm billing the client by the hour mm-hmm. um, then it's really easy to be like oh yeah you know I've really like given myself a lot of time to be very creative around this which means that you you know you're gonna pay a lot more hours yeah for hopefully what you want I mean I, I will be very creative about it but that's not always the this is kind of a bad analogy. I think what I was just kind of like, let's go back to like something that's just really about me. Like whether forget about who's getting paid for it. Yeah. It's just a matter of if I'm doing something for myself, whether it's, um, you know, I'm just like, Hey, I really want to paint this painting for myself. Yes. And if I'm set a deadline for it, then that will get me started on it. But then I'm stuck in that time compression time. Whereas if I don't set a deadline, I may never really get it done because I'm holding out for the idea of having uncompressed time to be creative around it. Yeah. And that, that balancing is obviously, um, it, it's not really related necessarily to what we're talking about, but it is something I was just thinking about. That's something I've been struggling with lately is, is trying to kind of find a, a solution to that. Or a, what I do is I break process. the project down into little tiny, 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 tiny projects. Mm-hmm. So like if I want to, if I want to paint a painting mm-hmm. on a canvas with some paintbrushes and some paint, Right. Each of those things is a separate project. Obtaining sure. the canvas, right. putting the canvas where I'm going to use it, mm-hmm. getting the paintbrushes, right. putting them where I'm going to use them, getting right. the paint, putting it where I'm going to use it, assembling all of the things in such a way that the next time I come to it, all mm-hmm. I have to do is sit down and be creative. It's like five different steps. And so I would break it up into individual little tasks mm-hmm. and I would give myself a timeline for each little task. So mm-hmm. I get the benefit of like the time compression giving me the poke in the butt to get something done yeah but the thing that i have to get done isn't the whole project it's just a tiny bit of it so even if i fail a little bit at getting something done by the deadline i still haven't ruined the entire project right right and i think this is something i forget to do but i have had some success with that Mm. um because i do know that it it seems silly to kind of break it down into the like to kind of stick with your um example yeah to break it down into Okay, now you need now you're on a mission to get the brush. And now you're on a mission to fill the bucket with water. Yeah. And now you're on a mission to put those two things in the same space. And now you're on a mission to go collect some paint. Well, oftentimes I'll break these things up so mm. that they're not right next to each other. Well, that's so, what in time. Right. right. So yeah. yeah. And so what I'm I, I think what I'm getting at is that when you don't think about the fact that they're in time and you're like, Well, why wouldn't you just be like it's time to paint and then you go do all the things and put them together and now you're ready to paint. Right. But, to, when I don't think about it like that and I leave it more into, um, you know, hey, one of the things I need to do today is get paint. Right. And then I get the paint. Yeah. And then another thing is like another day, one of the things I need to do is put the paint and the canvas together mm-hmm. in the painting area. Right. And so when, I, when I'm able to do it like that or remember to do it like that, yeah. I do have much more success because then all of a sudden now there's the whole structure ready to go and the last step is to show up and paint. Right. Um, and that's, uh, I, that I, I definitely balance that, um, success. Like sometimes it's more successful than others. Um, you know, I mean, me getting this planner is the thing that really helps me do that in a, in a, 
I was good at doing it intuitively. Mm-hmm. Um, but with more and more complicated things, if you really want to be super successful and get st- stuff done at a leisurely pace that allows you a big margin for error, yeah. or in other words, a big margin to be creative about how you get the individual things done, mm. you have to plan out a, kind of far. I mean, yeah. like in some cases, like months ahead of time. Right, right. Um, because you just have to know when the thing, I mean, this is more about like, I think of a lot of things as project management processes, honestly, because mm-hmm. um, I just project manage my whole life. Right. I mean, that's how I managed to have like three jobs and go right. to school and buy a house and do all this shit. Like, yeah. Because I was very, very, very organized. And the only way I was able to do that is by thinking months and months at a time. Mm-hmm. And then I have a lot of time to just sit and think. And when something arises, like, oh, eventually I'm going to have to do this. Yeah. What are the components of that thing? And can I break them up? Mm-hmm. between now and then into teeny tiny little manageable chunks that I could roll over to the next day into some of my free time if I right. don't happen to get it done for whatever reason. Because if you're thinking months ahead of time, there's a lot of room for yeah. intervention and error right. there. Right. So, uh, But the further out you plan mm-hmm. and the more rigorous you are about it, the you'll have tons of time to absorb things in the margins that come up unexpectedly or that you don't get done on time. Sure. Yeah. Um, and then you start to lose this the anxiety around it or mm-hmm. i do anyway that's one of the ways that i remain less anxious it's like it's cool it's written down in the book we've thought about it don't worry yeah yeah <laughs> yeah um yeah and that's something i think i i really need to do for myself in mm-hmm. some way let's find a way to do that yeah i think it's i think it's hard i like it took me a while to get it down and it was just i mean i was forced by necessity in order to be able to function mm-hmm. in the situations that I put myself in deliberately on purpose. <laughs> I wanted to, yeah. but in order to get all the things done, I knew I had to be um, really rigorous about it, but it was kind of fun. Yeah. And I really enjoyed it because I felt like I really had a handle on how things were going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I have less to do now. And so that's not as necessary, but I still tend to think of things yeah. at that level of detail. Right, regardless. right, right. right. Um, yeah. And I think we've, uh, as we've kind of discussed, um, well, one of the reasons we're doing this project and many of the projects that we're working on is to, um, as we transition away from those things that were demanding our time so mm-hmm. extensively, we're trying to fill that time with things that we want. It, it's it's enjoyable to work at that level. Yes. Um, or to kind of maintain that amount of, amount of sort of personal success. And I don't mean in the sense of like, oh, you're just creating wealth and you've got your, you know, all your amazing cars and stuff, but just right. that personal success of doing all of the things that you want to be doing and accomplishing um, tasks in that way. Yeah. I mean, it's very fulfilling when you mm-hmm. make a plan and then you actually see it through. Right. Yeah. yeah. You're like, look at it. And the thing that I really like about making complicated to-do lists uh-huh. is, man, you get to check a lot of stuff off. You and do. Th- that carries yep. a lot of momentum with it. Right. Right. Because um, you can actually look back. And now that I'm on my third Hobonichi, I have 18 months of just stuff that I did every day. It's just checked off. And, and it's just checked off. Right. Um, two, two books full yeah. at this point. Yeah. <laughs> Which is really cool. Um, and it makes you feel like you're getting a lot done, even if the things are, again, not things that you're getting financially compensated for. Sure. Or, but they're um, personal goals that yeah, need to they're be. just things that you need to spend your time on. Mm-hmm. or want to spend your time on and then you have a great record of it and you know if you if you have a bullet journal or a daily journal or just something that you use to schedule with detailed notes in it you can learn a lot from that too 
Yeah. By looking back at it mm-hmm. um, and being reflective about it. Right. You can really. That, that kind of makes me think about, um, you know, this topic of failure and having failure kind of built into, yeah. into a process. Um, you know, we, we've kind of very briefly talked about ways that you, you can have failure built in. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things I wanted to get at was that, um, failure, failure is, is a kind of success. It's something that you need to kind of check off as a thing that you've done as like one of the tasks on your list. It's, I think, I imagine some people who've done programming might recognize they they might not think of failure the same way I do. Like I think of failure as um, an iterative pro- or they might think of it the same way, but they don't use the word failure. They're probably talking about like troubleshooting or or debugging, where you're basically um, running your code and attempting to break your code and attempting to get the feedback from the processor or from the um, the compiler or whatever process yeah. you're using for the language to give you specific feedback saying, Hey, this is what's wrong right now. This is where um, you have a bug, but failure in any kind of process is the same. Um, it's a weird kind of exploration. And if you think of failure more as exploring yes. and you don't think of it as the more negative context of like, Oh, I failed. So it's not, yeah, I'm yeah. not good and not take that on board and be more excited about checking it off and being like, I, I you know, the approach I would take is, I did the thing one more time. I did the process one more time. I need to check that off. That's a good, you know, I'm making good progress here. So, you know, um, you know, in the movie, the Disney movie, Sleeping Beauty, how after like Sleeping Beauty's asleep, the prince who comes to assault her in her sleep slash rescue her, Uh um, has to cut through like a big thorn forest first that Maleficent puts up. Yes. I kind of think of success as like, I have that sort of like cartoony imagery in my head where you're mm-hmm. trying to find a path through something difficult yeah. and every one of the vines that you cut down is a failure, but mm-hmm. it reveals more of the right way to go because yes. you're removing that as an option that's wrong. Right. And right. so you're by definition getting closer to the option that is right in the end because you're removing the options around you for failure. Yeah. Possibly by failing. Yeah. Um, but that's still a positive process because you're still making strides towards the mm-hmm. eventual right way to get through something. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think, um, I, yes, absolutely. And I think that uh, I see myself as the person hacking through the forest, not the person asleep waiting to be assaulted in the tower. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that, that movie has got a lot of, uh, I mean, really, lot, I want to be Maleficent, but <laughs> yeah, like, anyway, back to the, yeah. back to the topic at hand. Um, I, and I think, uh, you know, a lot of these, um, these sort of tips in this book or the things that they talk about, um, revolve around the ability to recontextualize the idea of failure sure. in a way that is is more manageable. So I imagine in terms of like baking, like if, if you'd set out to bake a cake and you burn the cake, you view that as a failure. Right. And it's harder because you're, the effort, the time and effort is completely undone if you're, you know, right, it's cumulative, so you lose the whole thing in the very yeah, last step. Right, and so you've spent, you've put in this time and energy and resources. Maybe that was those were the last eggs you have. Those mm-hmm. that was the last amount of flour you have, and now you've burned the cake. You've set yourself up in a situation where you need to make it on time, and you've burned the cake, and now it's not ready for the party. A lot of these tips that we're kind of talking about, <laughs> like having version control, having the ability to um, go back to a good state. 
allow you to have that um, that failure safely. So what you would need to do if you're baking a cake is you would need to set up a more time available. Don't put yourself in a time compression where you only have one opportunity. Like you only have time to make right. one cake before the party. Right. And so if you know that you're setting yourself up in a situation where you're going to experiment and create this great cake, then you want to give yourself room to make several iterations so that you can learn from those failures and you can take them into account and you can say, oh, next time, um, you know, I'm not going to bake it at 550 degrees for two hours. (laughs) If you even have an oven that goes that high. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Um, My God. It would be like lava rock. Yeah, it'd just be this smoldering chard. Chard. It'd be like in um, in the toaster oven at the end of time. Ba- time bandits. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah, I always think. Mom of and that. Dad, don't touch it. It's yeah. evil. Right. <laughs> so good. Um, That's a great movie. If you hadn't seen it, go see it right now. Yes. Right this yeah. second, right now. I drop re- what you're doing. I really recommend that movie. Stop listening to us. Yeah. Go watch Time Bandits. Right. Right. Um. Yeah, so let's just kind of look at um, at a few more of these. So we we were kind of going through, and we're looking at um, we look we talked about kind of the idea of, about being able to backtrack. Um, the very first tip they give is the freedom to experiment, which I think we've been kind of talking around. Right. Yeah, we just kind of went backwards through it. Like all of the things that we've been talking about are the things that enable you to have freedom to experiment because you're on top of your time management. You've Mm -hmm. broken the thing down into manageable pieces so that if any one of them fails, which is great, it gives you the opportunity to learn from that failure and not be compressed by a time limitation that stifles your creativity and makes you end up with a less interesting or less suitable outcome. Yeah. 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 and I think hopefully these are pretty obvious. I'd love to hear from people um, at some point. I hope we can um, get some, you know, people on Twitter or however they want to choose to contact us. It would us be fun to do an episode about pragmatism as a philosophy. I would love that. Yeah. Yeah, because I there's a lot of it obviously in the pragmatic programmer. Yes. But it's all. Um, I mean, I I understand a lot of it, or I know how to think about a lot of it because I have thought about pragmatism but mm-hmm. in a in a sort of like armchair philosophical sense and sure. not in a in now take pragmatism and apply it to programming because i don't know that much about programming yet right, right um but yeah that's um please continue it's a, yes. it's a really cool book it, it, it yeah there's this, so much cool stuff in it we've been thinking about it a lot and just wanted to talk about it yeah i i mean just to kind of take a little tangent there um i came across this book pragmatic thinking and learning i had read um pragmatic the pragmatic programmer or pragmatic programming um many years ago i mean when it came out probably in 2004 i I don't remember but um you know maybe shortly after that and then at some point andy hunt wrote this book in 2008 and i think i found it maybe a year or two later and it was just really struck me as a really it's, it's a really great book because it's just a lot of compiled resources around thinking and learning sure um i i imagine in 2008 you know it's it's what 11 years old now so maybe some of it's a little out of date in the sense of because to kind of put this in context it's really well researched there's a lot of supporting evidence for all of the things that he discusses in the book about how they work um it's laid out in such a great way that it it talks about um 
what you can do, you know, things to, you know, in this sense, um, you know, we're talking about having um, failure as a built in part of your process. Right. And uh, then the author, Andy Hunt, he references various different books and um, studies that support what he's arguing for. Um, and then it's kind of laid out in this, just this kind of great, like they kind of have like activities. It'll say, um, you know, what's the next action you can do things you can try out. And although this book is heavily geared towards programmers, it's really none of it. There's that specific, that specific. You could take the, you could take the advice and the notes that they give you on how to be a better thinker and you can apply them to programming, which is what they spell out in the book. But yeah. you could back up from the programming bit and just look at the actual problem solving right. processes. And the, yeah. Whatever you want to do, any kind of thinking yeah, or learning. And, and it's it going to be, yeah. Um, um, yeah. So uh, just coming back a little bit, we, we talked about the freedom to experiment. We've talked a little bit about um, giving yourself room to backtrack so that you're, again, freedom to experiment and, and explore fail and, and failure. Yeah. And to fail. Um, so then one of the, one of the specific ones in here is that, um, or one of the, one of the kind of dare, like, one of the emergent properties of being able to backtrack, if you give yourself the right environment on whatever problem you're working on mm -hmm. um, and the ability to backtrack is the ability to reproduce any of the work that you've previously done. And so if we're talking about baking a cake, one way that we would give yourself room to backtrack is to keep reasonable notes. How right. long, you know, how much of a thing did you put in? You know, how much flour did you use? How much sugar did you use? How many eggs did you use? How long did you bake it for? How long did you need it for? How long did you stir it for? The more detailed information you give yourself, the easier it is for you to back up to any point and make changes. And the easier it is for you to isolate. Isolate problems. Problems, yeah. yeah and right. change them. And, and, and then having those failures become a big part of that process because now you know what you did. Mm -hmm. in a very detailed way yeah, like, and when oh, you get don't to the put end, don't put three egg yolks in yeah. there two's enough right and it becomes much easier for you to determine where the failure points are why they're happening and you know how to veer away from that step and move in a different direction towards the success yes um and then the last kind of big bolded tip was the ability to uh demonstrate progress so um this is basically arguing for feedback or basically suggesting that you need to leave room for or have a process in place that gives you feedback about what you're doing. Right. So like I sort of write my pro thought process down as I work through things in my big notebook. Mm -hmm. And then if I need to understand something about what worked or didn't work, I can kind of look at this uh, literary breadcrumb trail that I've left myself because I write a lot about what I'm doing. Right. Um, and so uh, I can go back and I can see what my what my actual thought process was at the time that I was working through something mm. because I've written it all down and I left myself notes. Right. And that gives you that room to um, get that feedback. Right. And like like I said, now I've got 18 months of breadcrumbs that I've left for myself because I've been keeping notes about all the things I've been doing for yeah. over a year and a half. Right, right. It's it's kind of fascinating to me the difference between um, kind of just making the assumption that you're you're doing that for yourself, and so 
your memory is good enough. Yeah. Because when I actually look at some of the things I've written down, sometimes they're, it's not that it's not so wildly different. Like, wow, that's not how I remember it at all. It just reminds me much more specifically about details that I probably would not remember otherwise. Yes. And having that, um, having that written record seems to make a big difference about the way that I think it helps me kind of change my thought patterns around things. It helps me, um, be more realistic about what it is I'm trying to do or trying to change about myself. Um, in my own kind of struggle with ADHD over the many, many years, well, my whole life, um, writing things down has been the thing that I have always appreciated when I've done it and struggled and struggled to continue to like encourage myself to do it because it is something that gives me very definitive feedback about, um, how things are going. Mm -hmm. It's really easy to kind of get mired in like, oh, you know, things aren't really going that well for me right now or blame my ADHD for this or that. But if I look back at what I've written about my feelings and my thoughts and my experiences in really concrete ways because I've, you know, managed to find a good email. Like I, I for a long time, I kept sort of an email journal to myself that I basically sent myself emails every couple of days. Huh. Um, and so when I kind of go back and look through those, it helps me see if I'm changing yeah. If I'm actually making any progress on something that I've been trying to work on and change in myself or whether I'm not and whether it's time to maybe consider that, um, uh, like one of the big revelation revelations that I've had this year is just kind of starting to realize that, um, I just don't have the same brain as what's expected. And so I need to like mm -hmm. change my expectations about it. It's not that it's useless. What's, and what's expected is really just a euphemism for, mass producing the most common ways of looking at, at the world and navigating it. And if you don't right. fall into that sort of middle or not even middle, if you don't just fall into that arbitrary. Yeah. The further away you are from that norm, the harder it can be to exist yeah. in that, in that living environment. Yeah. Um, and the analogy that I've, I think I've told you plenty of times um, is the idea of having a sailboat rather than a car. Yes. And I've just been spending so much time on the side of the road. Like I think I've spent probably most of my life thinking I have a car and it's always, it's just broken down on the side of the road constantly. Right. And I'm just constantly telling myself, well, this time I'm going to fix it. And when I do, I'm going to be able to get on that freeway and drive with everybody else. Right. And this year was the first year I realized that I'm never going to drive on the freeway. Because you're not a, you're I, not a car. I'm not a car. You're Occasionally <laughs> someone comes along and gives me a tow and sometimes I sit in the driver's seat and I, imagine that I'm driving on the freeway right. and I forget that I'm getting towed. Mm -hmm. And then at some point they're like, I, I can't tow you anymore. Like it's just not effective. And I, and it's, I'm not mad at them. I totally understand, but it's yeah. kind of a wake up call. It's like, Oh, right. I can't be towed on this freeway. Right. This doesn't make sense. You're like, thank you so much for getting me where I need to go, but I need to, you need wheels to be on the freeway. And what you've got is a sail in a hull. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. It's just really not. And it just does not going to move of its own accord. This is kind of like the ugly duckling thing, except you're not an, Ugly car, your boat. Right. Yeah. It's right. just not even a duckling at all. Not even a duckling at all. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, you're a really beautiful boat. I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> so, that's kind of the, um, that's where I'm at right now is figuring out where the water is mm -hmm. and how to get in it and how to sail around. Um, having spent most of my year trying to sail a boat on a freeway, which is just not working. It's not working at all. Yeah. Nope. 
Um, I sometimes when I think about leaving notes and stuff, um, I think about future Meg and I'm like, okay, yeah. cause I live in three tenses. I'm always in the present, yeah. but I'm constantly becoming both future and past Meg. Right. Like right now, right, right now, just then. Yeah. Um, so when I think about doing things as I'm doing them, I think about what future Meg will think of what past Meg did when I'm doing it now. So for instance, um, when I'm sitting around, if I'm like thinking about the grocery list in my head, yeah. I, I force myself to overcome the hurdle of expending energy to go write it down right now. Yeah. Because I know from experience that I will not keep everything in my head right. And when I mm -hmm. go to the grocery store without a list, I'll get some of it and I'll come home with food that I can't finish because I don't have the other ingredients or I forget sure. something entirely that I really wanted. Right. And then it's just a waste of time because I have to go back to the store and yep. it's inefficient. And then future Meg, yeah. who's experiencing that outcome in the present, yeah. is really irate with past Meg for not just like it's so much more work to go do that stuff again than it is right. to just get up and write it down when I'm feeling lazy. Right. And I've sort of learned this. And now um, I always think about what can I do to set like positive momentum booby traps for myself mm -hmm. so that I stumble across them in yeah. the future. Even if I do it unwittingly, uh -huh. I will fail upward because sure. I have made it impossible for myself to forget something. Like right. if I need to take something with me when I leave the house, I will put it in front of the door so that I have to either step over it yeah. or like open the door against it. Like I would have to go out of my way not to notice the thing yes. and do something about it at the time. And yeah. so I just, uh, I booby trap my future uh -huh. with positive things right. and I always leave notes so that um, future Meg can look back at what past Meg failed to do to mm -hmm. set up future Meg for success and then remember not to do that again next time. Right. So cut down another vine yeah. that's in my way and be like, oh, I got to remember. And I, it helps that like, it helps to take a lot of personal authority for getting these things done because when you're mad at somebody else, it's yeah. very easy to displace the blame and the accountability for the outcome that you wanted not happening mm -hmm. um, and be like, well, it was their fault. And if they had just gotten their shit together, I wouldn't be in the situation I'm in. I right. prefer myself to take complete authority for the outcomes so that the only person I'm mad at is me because that's so uncomfortable that I tend to like uh, really try to avoid pissing myself off in the future. Right, right. Because pissing myself off and being mad at me is way more uncomfortable than being mad at someone else whose emotions I don't have to manage at all. Right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's... um. I hate being mad at myself. Yeah. Oh, I hate it. Yeah. So I just try to like, what can I do? Like I think of myself um, in the future as not a different person Mm -hmm. um, but I like a time traveling version of myself. Uh -huh. And so I try to only carry things with me into the future that fit with the vision of the future that I want to have. Cause okay. you can only carry so much with you. Yeah. And so I try to send things into the future that future Meg knows that she'll want. Right. That will be of actual use. That will be not... of actual use. And like, not sending things into the future that I'm going to have to deal with in some way. Right, like a bunch of empty beer bottles or something. Yeah. Yes, like, that, would, what be, am I gonna like, do that would be a perfect example. Like, yeah. I want to clean them up now because I know I'm not going to want to deal with them later. And yeah. then future Meg will remember that I didn't want to deal with them in the future. Yeah. And I cleaned them up before. And then future Meg will be super happy at past Meg. Yeah. 
That's yeah. how that works. Right. Apply liberally. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's definitely, uh, I was also kind of in, in thinking about, um, when you're kind of talking about being both, but in three tenses at once, mm-hmm. once where you're sort of, you're always present, but you're also past and future. You're constantly moving into the past and into the future. Right. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I expand laterally. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's how I, that's kind of how I see my own existence or I experience it. Um, I'm like, Bleeding is not bleeding in the sense the way that ink bleeds on a page mm-hmm. um, or it sort of spreads out from a point. Yes. Is that idea of like I'm bleeding out into the future and into the past um, from the present, right? Like yes. there's kind of these, um, I'm leaving this trail in the past and I'm I'm projecting out this forward path mm-hmm. um, constantly, whether I'm conscious of it or not, it's it, by its own nature of existing the way that time works that that's the case yeah um yeah it's a weird yeah it it lives in a weird state in my mind that makes (laughs) sense it's it's hard to kind of put a lot of words around it but um the feeling of it and the vision of it and the sort of the way that i think about it is pretty intense and like pretty constantly yeah um going on that's cool yeah um so i think that um We've kind of, you know, we've covered the kind of the concept of, of failure and, and why it might be important to a process and, and maybe at least touched on some ideas about kind of um, removing it from the, the negative domain and making it something that's more part of your everyday process and, mm-hmm. and being aware of um, failure as being a really important tool in your toolbox for thinking, learning, yeah, moving through and- creativity and this is kind of reiterating what we've said, but maybe rephrasing it in a different way. I like to move failure from the end of my process Mm -hmm. and break it up from one massive failure where the Mm -hmm. whole thing ends in failure. Yeah. (laughs) It's a little redundant. Yeah. Um, And I like to reposition the failure as maybe smaller, more compartmentalized failures somewhere in the middle of the process. Yeah. Yeah. And when you do that, uh, you know, I used to think about failure as like, well, I'm either going to succeed or I'm going to fail. And it's the outcome that matters. And yes, and that worked. Um, but I was terrified all the time mm-hmm. and I don't like being that competitive. And yeah. It, it requires a lot of competitiveness to be right in the end all mm-hmm. of the time. Yeah. And it's not possible. Um, but I didn't. I don't feel like I really had people around me who were encouraging me to fail in measurable, manageable ways. And so it was an all or nothing thing for me at all times. And it was just a terrible way to live. And I didn't really figure that out until I was about 30. (laughs) So I've I've been on the good side of the fence with Uh green grass for about 10 years. That's awesome, though. That's awesome that you both saw the green side of the fence and decided that's where you wanted to be. Yeah. It takes a lot of work, but man, does it ever pay off. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It does take a lot of work to change in that way. Yeah, but it's yeah. really rewarding. Yeah. Rewarding. Rewarding. <laughs> now I'm going to learn how to speak. <laughs> yeah. It's my next trick. Right, next trick. Well, that's okay. I mean, that you have, you've set up a lot of space for failure, so you failed on that word this right. time and next it's time. Fine. Yeah, keep working Doesn't through matter. it. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, Great. Um, So I have a... <gasps> yes. I have a little tip for living well in hell this week that dovetails nicely with this conversation, actually. Great. Um, and that tip is, uh, learn how stuff works. I love that tip. 
Yeah. It's one of my favorites. So like yeah. if, you know, if you really want to be successful at something, you, like we said, you have to figure out what sometimes what is not successful. That's yeah. part of the process. And right. figuring out what's not successful is another word for failure. Yeah. Yep. Um, trying something that doesn't work. Yeah. And so um, learning how stuff works is actually really important if you care about the work that you're doing and you want to find the best solutions to things. Right. Um, right. Yeah. I, I've often found, um, I, I think this applies to everything. I find, I'm sure I have these same problems with this. Um, so for me, um, most people would say, oh, you're mechanically minded. And I, I disagree. It's not so much that I'm mechanically minded. It's just that there is um, safety in learning about certain kind of mechanical things. Like mm -hmm. no, people expect it of me. So it's much easier. There's let there's fewer barriers. Yeah. Um, I know that that's often, I guess what I'm getting at is that, um, there's this world of knowledge, this entire body of knowledge that exists as the sort of the real universe. And, um, we have all these social constructs that make barriers for different kinds of people. And so some people might have an aversion for math or they might have an aversion sure. for engineering or they might have an aversion for like more emotional understanding of things. Um, you know, like as a man, it was, it'd be kind of discouraged for me to understand how certain kind of social things work. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, unless I were to approach it like my dad does in a more analytical way, like it's perfectly acceptable as a man to be very analytical about some social context, Yes, but to actually learn how to use my own emotional experience and kind of be more empathetic towards people is, is less, it's less, um, there's not as many examples for me, right? Yeah. Um, and so I think what I'm kind of getting at is that um, when when one like myself is trying to learn about how things work, I try to I try not to beat myself up about my process, my progress in that, mm -hmm. and I also try to focus on the little things. Yeah. Like I don't, for example, how does an how does a car work? Um, if I'm learning about that, I don't need to. I don't need to know it all right away. Yeah. But just kind of think about it whenever it comes up. Yeah. And ask questions when I can and yeah. get little pieces of information and, and get a little bit further along. Yeah. So anyway, I don't know. I, I really appreciate that tip and I think it's a it's a good one. Knowing how things work make a big difference in your life. So. Yeah, and plus if you know how things work, you can be more helpful to other people, which is kind of the fucking point. Yeah. Don't be unhelpful. Right. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, including yourself, you can be helpful to yourself, which is a huge, huge, great, great experience. Yeah. Super rewarding. The best rewarding. It's yeah. the most rewarding. Right. Yeah. I mean, being helpful to other people is really rewarding. Yeah. And you can be helpful to a lot of people all at once, which is great. Yeah. But definitely helping yourself out is like yeah. the best. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. Okay. All right, everybody. Well, think a lot yeah. and think smart and use a process yeah you'll be glad you did future you will love you for it oh love you so much okay yeah. okay all right. all right here we go okay